Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think a prerequisite to building trust is that the diversity of who we are and what we bring and our experiences is recognized as a critical part of what makes networks thrive. So I think there's a lot that we can do even in anonymous environments to to create a culture of, of trust. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everybody. We are also joined today by David Ehrlichman, a catalyst and coordinator of the Converge Network and the author of Impact Networks, a great book about create connections, spark collaboration, and catalyze systemic change. David, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about creating networks for big impact. But before we get into that, let's feel the impact of a (laughs) check-in. Let's do it. We're just going to do a very light one today because it's been a big day already, even though it's only one o'clock here. So our check-in question for today, and we'll go Aaron, then me, then David, is this one. What is the best concert you've ever attended? (laughs) It's probably going to be seeing Michael Jackson when I was like eight or nine years old. You know, just the level of excitement, the level of hype, king of pop, all that kind of stuff. Obviously now a little problematic to look back, but at the time I was just psyched out of my gourd. That's awesome. When I was living in New York, it was when Ed and I were first dating. So this was like 2006, probably. A friend of mine who was working in journalism at the time got tickets to Amy Winehouse's showcase where she was going to just play for record execs. And then my friend who got the tickets was sick and couldn't go. And I went by myself to a midnight show at Joe's Pub of Amy Winehouse. Mark Ronson and Jay-Z were in the audience. And she got signed that night by Universal. And she played like a two-hour set with the Dap Kings. And it was like maybe one of the best nights of my life. That's mental. It was insane. And I could not believe that I was there alone. And I had no one <laughs> to turn to and be like, are you seeing what is happening right now? It was right after Back to Black came out. Uh, David, what about you? Amazing. This is a great question. I was quickly trying to rack my brain. I used to love going to concerts and it's slowed down for me over the last decade. But I'd have to say a really obscure one as just a local kind of Seattle band. And it was there. I was in high school, so kind of the peak of that type of fandom, and it was their last show ever, and everybody knew it, and they knew it, and it was just a pretty wild show. I ended up like crowd surfing, getting thrown on stage, and then getting nice. thrown off stage, and yes. then <laughs> getting a broken drumstick from the drummer, and it was just, it was a good time. That's, That's awesome. Out of control. 
Okay, so today's topic is the power of networks, and I guess you know musical networks are are an important one in culture. We want to start by asking you when and how were you first exposed to the idea and the potential of networks, human networks, and what drew you towards this type of work to begin with? Yeah, of course. This journey for me started about 15 years ago. I was working at a nonprofit organization here in Seattle, where I live, and this organization still around today. They do amazing work. They support men and women without shelter to get trained in and find jobs in the culinary industry. And when I was there, I you know, was seeing what a difference they were making in the terms of the lives of individual people. I knew I wanted to work for purpose. I was really following uh, the lead of my mom and sister in that respect. Uh, but I also saw that this organization was dealing with the symptoms of this massive broken system. And also, they were primarily working alone, trying to tackle, you know, what is a huge, huge complex issue of lack of affordable housing here in the city. And so I started to get really curious about how we could work not just in an individual organization, but across organizations, and not just address the symptoms of these issues that we face, but somehow get to the root of them and address these issues systemically. And so... That eventually led me to Monitor Institute, which is the social sector wing of a consulting firm. And Monitor was really doing a lot of research and work in supporting multi-stakeholder collaboratives at that time. And I learned and got inspired from examples of networks like Reamp, which is 140 organizations or so working to equitably reduce carbon emissions in nine Midwestern states. They had tremendous early success, shutting down 100-something coal plants, stopping all new coal plants from being built, at passing energy efficiency policies, and you know through the power of the collective that was being built. And, and these networks didn't just happen. They were really formally staffed and deliberately organized. And, and I also saw organizations like Kaboom not just scale up, building a bigger and bigger organization, but scaling their impact out through connections through relationships. Kaboom supports local neighborhoods to to organize and build playgrounds that are perfectly suited for their local context. And and they work through local partners on the ground. And this concept of not scaling up, but scaling out really fascinated me and and led me to, to leave Monitor and work with a couple colleagues. I was the founding coordinator for a network in Fresno, California. For three years, it connected you know, 36 different organizational leaders to revitalize their city across all sectors. And, and then I was a founding coordinator for Santa Cruz Mountain Stewardship Network, which we might talk about later. And then that's an effort to still going on today to bring together you know, government agencies, land trusts, nonprofits, academic institutions, tribal groups, timber companies to steward half a million acres of land. Because when we're talking about large landscape stewardship, caring for an entire landscape. There's no single individual organization or even sector who can do it alone. This land is mm-hmm. manned and owned by overlapping patchwork quilt of different groups. And if you think about just one issue, invasive species, if you clear out all the invasive species from your parcel of land and your neighbor hasn't done the same, it doesn't really matter much. <laughs> so through those experiences, Catalyzed Converge in 2013, and Converge really is just a network of practitioners, of designers, of facilitators who support 
impact networks. And, and, you know, over the past 10 years or so, we've supported over 50 different impact networks and I've played a variety of roles. And from those experiences, we saw that there's so much that's different for every network in terms of the people involved, what they're focused on, the region, the historical context, but there's also so much that's similar in terms of how they begin and the leadership that's required and, and the processes they go through. And so from those experiences and then also interviewing so many different network leaders that have become connected with and uh, and also you know bringing in sources from a variety of fields and related fields like community building and, and network science and systems thinking and so on, you know, compile that all into a book is want to give it away and want to be able to support and inspire others to do this type of important multi-organizational cross-sector work. So <laughs> let's just get into some like foundational definitions. When you talk about a network and when you talk about impact networks, like what does that really mean? And can you give listeners some examples that they could, you know, easily relate to in life? Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, a network at its most basic is just a web of relationships connecting people or things. So there are biological networks, right? There are neural networks in our brains, which we can see and how our neurons are connected and ideas are sparked. There are technological networks like the internet, the network of routers and cables that make up the physical infrastructure of the internet. There are the networks of websites that connect different URLs together on the World Wide Web. There are fungal networks, mycelial networks that connect <laughs> individual trees and plants together to transfer water and carbon and nitrogen and other nutrients and minerals between them in forests. So all different kinds of networks. And most people are very aware of social networks online or in person, the networks of people we become connected to in work and life. But what many people don't realize is that networks can be deliberately organized to do so much more than just create connection. We can organize networks for learning or connecting people together and fostering spaces and opportunities for them to share information, share data, share resources, and learn together on behalf of a larger issue. One example of a learning network is the IMPT, which is the IMPT.org, the Initiative for Multipurpose Prevention Technologies, which is a network of academic researchers and product developers and funders and policymakers and advocates who are advancing sexual and reproductive health for women and girls worldwide through the development of products called MPTs or multi-purpose prevention technologies, which uh, protect against STDs and also provide contraception at the same time. And that's a learning network where different groups around the world are, are combining their different research and their data to advance these products much further and much faster than ever would have been possible working alone. And then there are action networks which is connection, learning, and then deliberately organizing actions around particular issues. The Santa Cruz Mountain Stewardship Network, which I mentioned is an example of an action network, as is REAMP. Groups are sharing information, but they're also identifying points of leverage in the system where if they made a concentrated effort, at least a subgroup started to work together to, to advance some issues like stopping all new coal plants from being built, they could have a profound impact towards the common purpose that they share. And then there are movement networks, which is really the structure that a lot of social movements have taken, which connect multiple networks together or multiple local chapters 
together, those local chapters take action, work autonomously in the places that make sense for them, but they're also connected together through shared principles, shared purpose, they're sharing information, and then they can spark these whirlwind moments where people come out to the street together. So those learning networks, action networks, movement networks, those are all different examples of impact networks, which I define impact networks as networks that bring individuals and organizations together for learning and collaborative action for a shared purpose. So under that definition, would you consider the internet to be an impact network or not? No, because it doesn't have that shared purpose. I think subsets of the internet where people are deliberately organizing to advance a specific shared purpose, and if those networks are deliberately organized for learning or action or as part of a larger movement, I could consider that an impact network, but that purpose piece is really important. Got it, got it. Well, then I think that connects really well to a quote in the book where you write, Given the increasing complexity of our society and the issues we face, our ability to form, grow, and work through networks has never been more essential. So what's going on there? Why do you believe that that's so important and, and so impactful? What, what do networks offer when it comes to those sorts of problems that other solutions don't? Well, we know we have to work together in unprecedented ways at unprecedented scales, addressing social inequities, climate change, providing economic opportunity for all. These are all complex issues that can't be solved by working alone. If you know of the Kinevin framework from Dave Snowden, sure. you'll recognize that these issues, they're not merely complicated, they're complex. So unlike complicated problems, which have predictable solutions and which can be implemented effectively by people with the right expertise, complex problems have no readily apparent solution. We can't accurately predict the path ahead. We have to be able to experiment and modify strategies as we learn what works and what does not. And complex issues are experienced really differently by different people. Mm -hmm. People are affected by these issues in different ways. They'll see things very differently depending on where they stand and the experiences that they've had. And so in our work to address complex issues, we can't plan it all out in advance. They can't be solved effectively through traditional hierarchical approaches to management and strategy, where we're trying to predict and control the future. So instead, we need to bring different actors from across the system together. That often means from different organizations as well, to combine their diverse perspectives, to make sense of the issue collectively, and then to strengthen their ability to share information and resources, to coordinate their work, the things that they're already doing, and then to collaborate together in new ways to affect the whole system in ways that no group could on their own. And that's really what it means to build a network for impact. So the short version is to address systemic issues, we have to work systemically. And that means working across organizations and across sectors because there's no single organization or actor or institution who can do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. So if we just follow that assertion that we will need networks to thrive in complexity. Talk to us a little bit about how we harness a network's potential. Like what are the assumptions about work, about power, about leadership do we have that are maybe holdovers from other models or mindsets that we need to shed? And and what do you sort of see people struggle with as they make this kind of shift? Yeah, because hierarchies and networks are so different, working with networks calls for a different form of leadership, different forms of participation, a totally different mindset, which we call the network mindset shift. And that shift can take some getting used to, particularly for those of us who spent the majority of our lives and careers being trained in hierarchical environments like schools and offices. 
And when you embrace the network mindset, you stop working in isolation. And instead, you turn your focus toward cultivating connections. You start to notice more intently how your efforts are related to others. And again, rather than trying to scale up an individual organization, you seek to scale out, increasing your impact through collaboration. And here's one way to think about it. Most organizations or individuals tend to see themselves at the center of the universe, or at least their their primary focus is, is on the organization itself. And they see many potential stakeholders around them that they could collaborate with to help further their own mission. But the essential shift here is to see ourselves as part of a larger interconnected system of different actors, different organizations. We're not the sun at the center of a solar system, even though we're usually the heroes of our own stories. Instead, we're one star in this huge and diverse constellation. And so rather than putting yourself or your organization at the center of your focus, try putting a shared purpose at the center. What is a core issue that you and many other groups also care about? And then when you can find that purpose or purposes that might connect different groups together, we can work to strengthen those connections and flows of information between them. This is really interesting because my my experience of trying to do this has been one of some struggle. And so maybe you can jump in and advise like where we got it wrong. Because before the Ready existed, we I, I participated in standing up a network that was called responsive.org. And it was basically about new ways of working and thinking about work and kind of, you know, anti-bureaucracy, anti-hierarchy thinking. And the challenge we always had with it was that we had quite a broad membership, but because it was a weak ties membership in the sense that like this was everybody's second or third priority, their first priority was their job, their family, their hobby, whatever. We never could really get work done on behalf of the network that was really like all the way there, you know, that had the right level of energy and intent and support and financial support, et cetera. And, and it ended up kind of getting to a place where it was like, oh, we're not, we're not able to achieve what we're hoping to achieve because we're not able to give enough energy to the network rather than the individual entities that make it up. And that led directly into the creation of the Ready, where it was basically, like you said, like, I guess we need a bigger planet or something. So we'll, we'll put everybody in the, same, in the same, you know, tent, so to speak, where there's a little bit more of a strong ties connection to the agenda. What do you think we might have gotten wrong there or missed or, you know, lacked that would have changed the dynamic? Three things come to mind. You named one of them, which you said it was a, a weak ties network. And I... People often talk about the strength of weak ties, and that's true for connecting to new ideas, new information, getting references, that kinds of things. But there's also a strength in strong ties. We we don't necessarily work together, especially through divergence and conflict and our competing priorities when we just have weak ties. Those are good for sharing information, but not as good at working together through the various issues that we're going to face. And strong ties, relationships of trust are so critical. I mean, we, people work through relationships, and we might get into more of that later. But another thing that I heard is it sounded like your aspiration was that it would be an action network that people would actually start to work together on different issues. But 
but perhaps it was actually better suited as a learning network mm. of, of taking the pressure off. We don't have to work together. We don't have to do something together. We're already doing so much work in our individual organizations or contexts, but we can create a space where we can share information and, and share resources and provide opportunities for people to make requests and, and share offers with one another. And it's much better to be healthy and vibrant learning network than kind of a middling action network. It's <laughs> right, not right, really right. going anywhere. And then the last thing is that it's, it's really important. We're talking so far about what's the shared purpose or interest that brings us together, but just as important is the self-interest that mm. people come with. It's we're integrating both self-interest and shared interest. Yes, there's there's a lot of focus on what connects us together, but also we have to be really honest and explicit about our self-interest. What do I need to get out of this this collaboration or this network? What do I need to get in order to make the time I'm contributing worthwhile right, for me or for my organization. We, we have purposes at different levels. We have our individual purposes, the things we personally care about. We have our organizational purposes, the priorities that we have in our, in our jobs and our organizations are moving forward. And then we have our systemic purposes, kind of the higher level things that maybe draw us together. And all three of those are important. And so we try to be you know, really clear about acknowledging self-interest and a couple of ways to go about that. One, really creating spaces for people to share those self-interests. Here's what I need to get. And, but also, here's what I may be willing to give to support mm. others. And creating opportunities for people to make those connections right away and get really immediate value by sharing requests and offers, connecting the dots and supporting their existing work. But also, you know, tying what they're working on in the network to their existing day-to-day organizational priorities. And so if there's a particular area of work, the the lead of that team or that circle, it's most effective that that person is the work of that team or circle is going to support the work that they're already focused on in their day-to-day or in their organization. So really tying the priorities of what aligns with the network and also is connected to the organizations together. So so it benefits both and people are feel like the time they're contributing to the network isn't a separate extra thing. It's actually supporting the work that I already am and want to be doing. So the mistake was instead of having a deep playbook, we just had a t-shirt that said network. <laughs> that makes sense. So it sounds like, you know, the common purpose thing is very resonant. This is also reminding me a lot of the research that uh, was behind the book team of teams. Mm. Um The other thing that I heard you allude to but didn't get right into was around trust. But that is something that thematically comes up a lot in your book. Uh, You wrote that we've consistently found that trust is the single most important factor behind successful impact networks. Networks move at the speed of trust. Can you just talk a little bit about that and like why trust is such a linchpin in a network? Sure. uh, To repeat all networks really are just webs of relationships connecting people or things. So they're as strong as the connections that hold the things together. And when relationships move to a level of of mutual respect, then it becomes what we might call trust. And, And that means taking the time to understand what each other cares about and needs to build deep human connection so that we can have the honest conversations that are necessary. And importantly, we build trust not so that we like each other. We actually don't have to like each other to be able to work together. And and certainly not so that we agree with one another. It's actually so that we can have 
like generative conflict and bring diverse opinions together. But we build trust so that we can hold the tension through the inevitable disagreements and conflicts that we'll face. And so we can hang in there long enough until we can maybe find a slice of common ground where we do agree and we can start by working on that thing as a foundation for a deeper relationship or mutual support. Or at least we'll have a greater understanding and appreciation of each other's perspectives, which might inform our own perspectives in some way if we're open to it. So I'm curious. I mean, you're talking about networks aren't new and that it's natural for us, but you're also talking about a lot of nuance in terms of how to do it well. And I guess what I'm wondering is how do we how do we teach people what they already know intuitively and how do we also inform them about the skills and approaches and mindsets that they need to be in these networks that don't come naturally? Yeah. As you alluded to, people have always formed networks, right? (laughs) Right. We've, We've always worked in community with others to solve challenges that we can't solve on our own. And so in many ways, I'm actually talking about a return to the ways that humans have naturally connected with one another for as long as we've been around Mm -hmm. in community in relationship. And I'm calling for an unlearning of the top-down and command and control model that's been imposed on so much of the world, often by white colonizers, right? Building on lessons from social movements and community building and indigenous wisdom and generations of people who've worked in these ways for thousands of years. We can also then incorporate lessons from network science and, and bring in new technologies and tools we didn't have before that help us to coordinate with each other at larger scales. And And so together, blending all of this, we now have more tools and ways of fostering large-scale collaboration than ever before. There there really are proven practices for bringing communities and organizations together to address complex issues that don't have a clear beginning or end. And I write in the book about how networks are all around you, whether you're aware of them or not, that influence who you're connected to, where you get your information, how work gets done. But they often go unnoticed, or at least not deliberately supported and organized. You know, oftentimes the networks we're a part of has kind of happened organically as we pay, became connected to, to new people, but they're not deliberately organized. They don't have a, that deliberate structure that then allows for emergence. It's really like planning mm-hmm. for emergence or structuring, structuring for emergence. We have to create containers and shared context and, and bring the right group of people together that, are, that have that shared context or something that connects them in terms of the shared purpose or shared purposes, and then create spaces and facilitate conversations and in a flow that, that gets people to recognize where they agree, where they disagree, what they could work on, what issues they want to dig deeper on, how they can support each other's existing work, and then what might be points of leverage in the system that could affect all of our work. So it's that, that recognition of being you know, more more deliberate in terms of supporting these types of relational structures around some common issue. There are, are many thousands of listeners who are like very uh, resonant with what you just said from the, you know, the past conversations that have been happening on this show. Yeah. I mean, what that brought up for me, David, is it does feel like part of the shift that I'm hoping to see that attends the shift from hierarchy to network is a shift from something like project management to something like facilitation and org mm. design. I'd just like to ask you, because you brought up facilitation, what are some of the containers that you see really healthy networks using? It, it may not be a container, which kind of creates a structure around what me, what we 
talk about or what we do, but maybe more of a, a foundation or a platform of, of shared context, I think is an important thing. You know, why is it that we come together? You know, what might be uh, the shared purpose or purposes that bring us together? Then who is involved? You know, getting to understand the people who are in the room. This gets to you know, what I see as the core activities of impact networks, which is First, clarify purpose and principles. Right? Purpose inspires people to join, contribute their time and energy. Impact networks can't be controlled, to your point, but they can be oriented around a shared purpose or a shared context. And then as the network clarifies its purpose, it's helpful to articulate shared principles, which are principles or fundamental beliefs about how we intend to conduct ourselves and work together in pursuit of that purpose. So if values are the things we hold important, principles are how do we put those values into action? They really operationalize values. And then we convene the people. We create opportunities for people to become connected virtually, in person, individually, or all at once in convenings that bring the whole network and the whole system together. And, and who to invite into an impact network depends on its purpose, its context, timing, and scope. But to quote Adrian Marie Brown, bring together those who, one, are directly impacted by the issue, two, are doing compelling work on the issue, and three, can move the work forward. And importantly, as we invite people into a network, we're not inviting them into our thing. We're inviting them into co-creating what's possible now that they're part of the group. And then as people are brought together, right, the next focus is to culture relationships of trust, which we just talked about. And as we build trust, we also then can coordinate actions by creating stronger flows of information and knowledge and resources. And these flows create stronger systems. And in particular, we find opportunities for people to coordinate the things they're already doing with one another, supporting each other's existing work and finding quick wins that get to the self-interest and make participating in the network a valuable use of their time. And then finally, in addition to coordinating the things we're already doing, we can collaborate in new ways to create change at the level of the whole system. And that requires making collective sense of what's happening from many different perspectives, bringing our pieces of the puzzle together to see the big picture, and taking action on key leverage points, or as Danella Meadows has said, places where a focused effort on one thing can create big changes throughout the whole system. So those are five activities to really pay attention to in this process of facilitation, clarify purpose and principles, convene the people, cultivate trust, coordinate actions, and then collaborate for systems change. The five C's. Five C's. C is such a great letter. Almost every alliteration, <laughs> framework I've seen starts with a C. Alliteration is the secret to all idea worms. I... I don't know if we can do an episode of the show anymore where we don't talk briefly about DAOs, Rodney. But I we'll find out. Uh, Not right? today. Not today. <laughs> but I do I am curious, David. I've seen your work and you show up in the Web3 space as someone to look to for ideas about how to do this well. What is your impression of what is going on with decentralized autonomous organizations right now? Are they impact networks? Are they not? Do they embody some of these principles and practices or not? And and what do you think it looks like going forward? I think back to the definition of impact networks, networks that bring individuals and organizations together for learning and collaborative action for a shared purpose. Yeah, I think many DAOs can be considered impact networks. And that's how I kind of got looped into this work because there is so much overlap. It's how how can we work together across typical boundaries in in ways that unleash self-organization and lead to emergent action and have decentralized leadership and distributed decision-making and so on. So that's what really interested me in, in these different 
decentralized efforts that are popping up. And one thing I've seen as I've gotten more into this space over the last year is it's been interesting. And in my work in the social sector over the last decade, so much of my work and what I've talking about and writing about and had to focus on early in projects is that network mindset shift, the the shift away from kind of the traditional hierarchical ways of doing things, the command and control approach and you know the centralized leadership and all that. And what's been really interesting in working in Web3 is the the center of gravity is on the other side of the pendulum where most people already are coming in with that ethos of understanding why decentralization can be really valuable and you know, why it's important to distribute leadership and decision-making. And, and what's been fascinating is I've found myself more now in this world of DAOs and Web3 actually bringing the voice of actually a little more structure is important, <laughs> right? Yeah, we feel you uh, there. Yeah, and we can create structures within which things can emerge. Structures for emergence, right? Minimum viable structure, yes, and structure where form follows function, but but structure isn't all necessarily bad and hierarchies aren't necessarily bad either, right? Yes, we're we're not trying to replicate the dominant power hierarchies where a single individual or small group has decision-making power over others in an organization or a context, but but hierarchies that naturally emerge like as heterarchies where people are you know, delegated by others because of the, the expertise they have and the experiences they have to, to make decisions around certain issues. Those can be really healthy and really helpful when we get to the point of smaller circles or teams that are really trying to advance deliberate work that, that do have clear beginning or end. So that's been one of my early impressions is that I think the pendulum has swung so far on the side of just total emergence and uh, (laughs) decentralized work. And and we can find, I think, a balance in the middle that blends the best of both. Touch of chaos. That's cool. I want to go to two different places. Mm. I'm going to go first back to the trust thing because we talked about trust and then we talked about DAOs. And I'm curious to hear your take on large networks that are operating with more anonymity than a traditional organization would and how like how do you preserve trust in that context yeah it is it is a a bit of a different challenge but i think there's actually a lot that still works even in anonymous contexts you know there's kind of four ingredients of trust that that i've seen the first is reliability which works in either context which is Choosing to trust people is in part a judgment that they will be true to their word and follow through on their commitments, right? And that way, trust grows through action when people help each other and support each other. But trust also comes from openness. And this can also work in anonymous contexts where people actually take the time to have conversations with one another, get to know each other, even if it's just through their voice, and share more about themselves as an individual. They don't have to give away personal details or where they live or even what their name is, but they can share what a pivotal moment of their life was or an example of a mentor really influenced them or a book or a piece of writing or a poem or a song or a concert that really influenced them. You know, taking off our, the guardedness that we, that we often have and come into professional environments with and open the door for more like human to human connections as individuals. And, it's openness on two ways. It's the openness of being willing 
able to share those things, our true emotions and opinions, but also the openness on the other side of it, the openness to listening to others and and considering perspectives that, that are different from our own. And if we even if we can't build trust or choose trust at a time directly with another person, we might be able to trust that they care for a similar thing that we also care about. In cases where past transgressions have revealed that people are not to be trusted, often a first step is to recognize that others hold a mutual concern for something that they also care about. So triangulating in that way. And then through appreciation of of each other, of, of our different ways of beings, our the different ways we show up, or different ways of knowing and doing. I think a prerequisite to building trust is that the diversity of who we are and what we bring and our experiences is recognized as a critical part of what makes networks thrive. So I think there's a lot that we can do even in anonymous environments to, to create a culture of, of trust. I am curious. I mean, you, you just talked about trust and a lot of assumptions and commitments and communication that can happen to support it. One of the great perennial debates on this show is about the value of working on the system and designing the system and the constraints and the structures and the platforms that you have talked about already. And then the other part is like, well, we have to, we have to work on the individual, right? We have to teach them or train them or mature them or make them more self-aware or whatever the case may be. As you think about networks and all the different kinds of network configurations you've seen, including DAOs, where do you come down on that pendulum? And, and if the answer is a both and, maybe pull that apart a little bit. Well, I do think it's a both and. I mean, I think, you know, finding the right individuals for the context or the environment that's being created. And, you know, the networks that I work with, very few of them are completely open. Right. It, it, mm-hmm. right? it can be really valuable and important to create some boundaries. I've heard Charles Vogel say that a community without boundaries is no community at all. We have to create some kinds of structures of what it means to be part of a community. And um, like what Priya Parker said about this in The Art of Gathering, you know, the desire to keep doors open, to not offend, to maintain a future opportunity, she writes, is a threat to gathering with a purpose. <laughs> Inviting people is easy, but excluding people can be hard, she says. But a thoughtful, considered exclusion is vital to any gathering because over-inclusion is a symptom of deeper problems, above all, confusion about why you're gathering and a lack of commitment to your purpose and your guests. So I think that speaks to you know, convening the right individuals who who share commitment to the values of the community, or at least a commitment to openness and you know, mutual respect and so forth. But then also the it is creating a context and, and creating a culture of, of reciprocity and way of being than people are often used to relating in, in our day-to-day work. We can, I think, create environments that also change the individuals or the ways that they behave by you know, deliberately facilitating certain conversations or you know, establishing shared values and principles and you know, commitments of how we're going to hold each other to those, those values and principles and taking the time to build relationships and have interesting conversations with people you don't normally have them with and conversations you don't normally talk about. But again, in the context of what we're here to do, right? It's not just building relationships for relationships sake. It's, it's building connections so that we can, we're better able to 
to share learnings, share information, share resources, coordinate our work and to do new things together that we can't do alone. So I really do think it is both. That's cool. That also brings up a question. I worked with a client last year that just had chronic, chronic <laughs> over-inclusion in meetings. And there was such a sense of, um, you know, worry about offending people or what it would mean to really call the list. And and your point about dilution, just it's really resonant because I think in a in a culture where it's some kind of slight to be excluded, then what is essential about the group is also really hard to put one's finger on. And so I just, it's a really, it's a really cool point. I really like it. And I'm going to remember that. And I had forgotten about that part of Priya's book and it's great. Um, So thanks for saying that. Sure. One, one point of that, you know, a lot of folks talk about Dunbar's number 150, but really we can get more fine Mm -hmm. than that. The best decision-making in groups happens between five and seven. And there's research that shows every person you add in a group above seven reduces the decision-making effectiveness of the group by 10%. So when it comes to making decisions, you might want to delegate that decision-making responsibility to a group of five to seven, or in the case of a core team, for example. And then there are kind of the next concentric circle around that is somewhere between 12 and 24. You know, this is kind of the size where there's, it's large enough to offer a diversity of opinion and allow for a certain amount of you know, mystery. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, we're not, we don't know everybody else in the group to a certain depth. And so that's, you know, really compels people, but also it's small enough that we can have a meaningful conversation as a single group. You know, when we get above 24 people, gets really, really hard to have a single conversation. You don't say. At one time. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even with great facilitation. Again, Adrienne Marie Brown, her sheet has a guideline that for a meaningful full group conversation, we need to allocate about five minutes per person. And that's not five minutes at the same time per person, but that's just a guideline. How many people do you have in the group times five? That's about how many minutes you need for that full group conversation. And given that the Average person can only pay attention for you know, 90 to 100 minutes, 120 minutes at a time before they start glazing over. <laughs> that, that 24 people gets us up to about the upper limit. So I think we can be strategic and in, in not just you know, the 150 cap of all of the possible people that we might know before we split out to subgroups and new networks, but but also in the in the smaller circles and decision making groups. Thoughtful about how many people are involved. So one thing I'd like to hear a little bit about is just to dig a little bit into the book. Your book has a lot of great stories of impact networks. I just want to hear about one example where you feel like this is this is what it should be and this has real transformative potential. Yeah, I'd like to return to the Santa Cruz Mountain Stewardship Network because I spent so much time with this network and, and it's still going today. You know, we've or successful in hiring in local network leadership that's continued to support the network years later. And, you know, again, it brings together right now, I think 24 different organizations, government agencies, local, state, and federal land trusts, academic institutions, tribal group, timber companies to collectively steward half a million acres of land. And these different groups came in disagreeing about a lot of things, but they also recognized over time that they shared a lot of things. They mm-hmm. recognized the ecological and cultural importance of the land. Wildfire was a huge issue for all of them, invasive property development. And so they found opportunities to collaborate in ways that would support 
all their work. And specifically, a couple of examples, they partnered together to combine their different data sets and launch a massive region-wide vegetation mapping project, which is the first of its kind in the region. And they're using that data to reduce the risk of catastrophic wildfire, which is a huge issue. And in partnership with an even larger network in the state, the California Landscape Stewardship Network, which is actually made up of 30 different regional networks across California, including the Santa Cruz Network, they have advanced an initiative called Cutting Green Tape, which has since been taken up by the California Secretary for Natural Resources, Wade Crowfoot, as a key initiative of the state. Permitting processes have basically been the same in California for important and urgent ecological restoration work as they are for building a condo. And so the aim there is to reduce the burden and like the time required for important restoration work so that this environmental work can be done at a faster pace and a lower cost. But what's maybe most transformational and most people wouldn't see is the way that, again, relationships have completely changed. That The height of the 2020 wildfires, which were really devastating for that region, shows how once strengthened, networks can spring to action when opportunities or crises hit. You know, once we build the connective tissue across systems, those just those don't fade away immediately, even if the formal activities of the network have ended. They can they can be reconnected, re-sparked when, when there's a need or a crisis. And in this case, one of the stories I share in the book is about the CZU lightning complex wildfire, which it took over a month to contain. Over that time, 86,000 acres burned in San Mateo and Santa Cruz counties. And as the fire burned, more forest was burning in Santa Cruz County than in San Mateo County both parts of this larger region. And because of that discrepancy, the San Mateo Resource Conservation District, or RCD, it's a government agency that's usually constrained by jurisdictional boundaries to restore land, but they had a bit of extra capacity, and they immediately sent their staff across county lines to support the Santa Cruz post-fire recovery work. And the executive director of the San Mateo RCD, who's also a founding member of the Santa Cruz Stewardship Network. She said, we'll figure out the problems with county boundaries later. We'll just find a way. That wouldn't have happened. Uh, And and meanwhile, the Santa Cruz RCD, which also is an organizational member of that Santa Cruz Network, they were so busy responding to the fire, they didn't have the bandwidth to raise resources for their efforts. And so to provide help, San Mateo passed 80% of the funding they received from the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service to Santa Cruz. So across wow. government lines, they're passing funding with no assurance that funding would ever come back. And I want to quote from the book because I think this leader says it better than I ever could, Is it the ED of the San Mateo RCD. She says, that wouldn't have happened without the kinds of relationships and conditions the network provides. Mm-hmm. The network makes us think about why it benefits all of us to work at a landscape scale, and to work across boundaries and across sectors, even if there isn't an immediate return on that investment. We are continually looking for how to make it work instead of focusing on why it won't. Hmm. I think those are the kinds of changes which are hard to measure, but really make the biggest impact. You love to see it. I'd love to know, David, as a as sort of a parting question, if you could put up a billboard that everyone would see, what would be the, the sentence on it? Return on relationships. <laughs> invest in ROR relationships are you know, the heart of this and if you're unsure about what to do or how to proceed you know, think of the connections think of the people and the different groups who are part of the same systems that you're a part of and how can we strengthen 
the connections, have new conversations, start to share information and do things together that we can't do alone. A new investment strategy. That seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. So David, where can our listeners find out more about you and Impact Networks and your work? Easiest place is converge.net. That has links to the book. There's also a, a documentary that I produced a couple months ago. There's an 18-minute full version, then there's a four-minute condensed version if you're short on time, but it tells the stories of six network leaders around the world. It's free. It just It's really worth worthwhile, I think. There's also a, a toolkit on there, which we open source with Creative Commons. We want you to use it, adapt it. There's surveys, there's facilitation tools, there's all different kinds of things that we hope you use and apply to your work. So Converge.net is the easiest place. And, and then on Twitter, I'm at D-A-V Ehrlichman, E-H-R-L-I-C-H-M-A-N. Amazing. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And for all of you out there, if you loved what you heard, a review would mean ever so much to us or forward this show to someone who needs it. Grow the network. A quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us all sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and organize. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.